Hi, I'm Jonathan Burke, Professor of Finance at the Graduate School of Business at Stanford University. And I'm Jules van Binsbergen, a finance professor at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. And this is the All Else Equal podcast. Welcome back, everybody. Today, we're going to talk about incentives and externalities. Incentives are a very important driver of human behavior, and there's tons of research in economics that shows the effect of incentives and how it makes people change the way they act. Yeah, you know, Jules, I would say that people who ignore incentives ignore incentives at their own peril. Because I think that there's one truism about human behavior, it's that humans respond to incentives. Often people say it's difficult to predict behavior, and I often say, no, it isn't. It's actually very easy to predict behavior. You just have to figure out what the incentives are. Of course, figuring out what the incentives are might be difficult, but people respond to incentives. Now, and I think it gets particularly hairy when people respond to incentives and we wish they wouldn't do that because when they do it, they cause what's called externality. It means that it has negative consequences for other people in their surroundings. And so even though it's in their own best interest to act that way, we are somewhat disappointed by the fact that they do it because they impose these externalities on other people. But the fact that we're disappointed by their behavior shouldn't mean that we should expect them to behave that way if it's in their own interest. A very common mistake is when we don't like the behavior, we just pretend that they won't behave that way. I think that's very naive that people do respond to incentives and you have to take that into account. What we should talk about today is things that are not so obvious. So in a previous episode, we spoke about externalities and we used the fishing on the lake as an example, but that was pretty obvious. Today, what we want to talk about is just a few examples of externalities and incentives that are not obvious and we think are interesting. For sure. I do think the point you made earlier is exactly true, right? When we have corporate social responsibility and we observe firms and it turns out that they have an incentive to say that they're doing all kinds of good things. And then when you really look deeply, it turns out that they're just saying it, but not actually doing it because it's against their incentives. People seem to be surprised about the fact that the corporations behave that way. But if we just understood what the incentives of the corporations, and in some cases, even the legal obligations is of the fiduciary duty of the management of the firm, I don't think we should be really that surprised when we see what people call greenwashing. Okay. So we have a couple of examples today we want to talk about. And I think let's just start with something that bothers me every time I log on to a new app or a new website, and we invariably get this document that says, in order to use the service, you must agree to the following licensing document. And the document is so long that it would take hours to actually read. And like everybody else, we agree and move on. And the question is, why have we reached a point where we're agreeing to things we don't even read now these days? Well, let's first take the perspective of the corporate lawyer who is drafting the document. And so that lawyer is worried about the state of the world where the company that they represent is getting sued. And so if there is a clause in there that protects the company or a clause that helps the company make more money than they otherwise would have, then the lawyer looks very good. If a clause like that is not in the document, then the lawyer is on the hook for not having drafted a complete enough document. So it seems to me that the incentives are pretty one-sided. And the incentives are make the document as long as possible in an effort to cover every possible scenario that could protect the corporation. And this is true for 
any, not just online documents, but any documents. Legal documents can be incredibly complicated. If anybody has bought a house recently, there must be hundreds of pages of legal documents that obviously very few people read. The question is, why are there hundreds of pages? And it's exactly this incentive. The problem is we have an externality because the corporate lawyer isn't worried about the case where the person reading the document doesn't have the capacity to actually read it carefully enough to check every single clause. In other words, if I sign a document and then later on realize there was a clause in there that is to my detriment that I didn't notice, people don't say that was the lawyer's fault for putting together a very complicated document. They say that's my fault for not reading it correctly. In other words, the lawyers don't take into account the cost to read the document or to process the document. Although you could easily foresee a change in doctrine there, right, Jonathan? Just to give you an example, when we look at the number of investment choices or mutual funds that are offered to people in pension plans at universities, we've reached a point where in the legal doctrine, people are saying you offered so many choices that you couldn't possibly expect people to make the right choice. You can easily see this translate to this situation where at some point, the judge is going to say, it's unreasonable to expect anybody to spend seven hours reading this entire document and making sure they understand everything. The person is not on the hook for having signed it. That doesn't seem that far away, in my opinion. I agree, Jules. In fact, to some extent, I'm surprised we haven't already seen this, especially with regards to the internet. We're all basically agreeing to these very long documents, licensing agreements. None of us are reading them. And you would think eventually somebody would sue on the basis that even the company did not expect the people to read it. And that therefore, the expectation that you should read that document was too onerous. And therefore, when the person agreed to it, they weren't really agreeing to every clause. We haven't seen it, but I think the day is coming when that's going to happen. Well, the the other thing that I think would be an interesting study to do, and maybe people have done this, I'm not aware of it, but maybe in the legal literature they have, is whether over time, gradually, these documents are getting longer and longer. If we would compare the length of a mortgage contract from 1970 compared to today, is there a difference? Because it seems to me that, particularly when it comes to trying to write these what we call complete contracts, nothing ever disappears. It's only that you add yet another thing to it. Yes. And for the same reason, nobody takes into account the cost to process the document. So if you do not take that into account, there's no cost to dropping anything. And so the documents become more complicated. And I think they probably have. Certainly, the documents to buy a house have become more complicated over my lifetime. Another example that I think is very interesting is how the government repairs roads. I find, you know, since we're all drive every day and I, and I look at the road repair, this example often comes to irritate me. So imagine the government has a certain amount of manpower, and so the government has enough manpower to fix 52 roads in a year. And they now have to determine how to implement the manpower. They can either put everybody to work on a single road and do that serially. So every week, everybody works on one road, and so at the end of the year, 52 roads are fixed. Or instead, they can work on all the roads at the same time. And because I think it's slightly cheaper to work on all roads at the same time, basically because there's very little coordination. If some subcontract doesn't show up, you can just move the manpower to another road because it's all going around so slowly. There's always free work to do. 
the government always elects to work on lots of roads at the same time. Why? Because they don't bear the costs of the closed road when they're working on it. So if they work on all 52 roads at the same time, they get it still done in a year. So both times it takes a year to do 52 roads. But as far as the inconvenience is concerned, it's greatly different. If they work serially one road a week, then only one road is closed for a week. Whereas if they work on all the roads together, all 52 roads are closed for the entire year. And I don't think we see the second precisely because nobody takes into account the cost of the delay of the closed road. So what do you think would be a solution for such a scenario? By the way, for the previous case, we essentially think that eventually the legal system will change and that will somehow solve it, although I'm not sure how that's going to work. And I don't think we really had a good solution for that. But for this one, is there a good solution to solve this? Well, you know, this is my pet proposal. My proposal is that we introduce something called a delay tax. So this is how it would work. Any government organization has to pay the cost of the delay that they impose when they impose a delay. So for example, they fix a road, there could be a simple calculation of the inconvenience to everybody, and then you tax them on this inconvenience. And my proposal would be all the money would be collected and then redistributed to the same government agencies. So it wouldn't raise any money, it would just impose a cost on each entity that's proportional to the delay they're causing. Another good example I have is in this day and age where we have self-driving cars, we still have traffic lights that work on timers, which is completely crazy. A traffic light should be able to tell and dynamically adjust to the traffic. So we never have a situation when you're sitting at a traffic light and there's no cars coming in the other direction. That's just an example of imposing a delay for no reason. And again, because the government doesn't bear the cost of that delay, they have no incentive to put in smart traffic lights. Yeah. So I think in Europe, you do have many places where indeed you have a sensor in the road that at least sees whether or not a car is there and therefore doesn't have to turn that light on green if there isn't a car there. But you're right. With self-driving and smart cars, we're constantly locked in anyway to all kinds of systems. And the cars on their own are too. So at this point, it should actually be possible to perfectly tailor the traffic lights to the flow of traffic that's going on. Jules, just to be clear, lots of cities have traffic lights and can tell if a car is at the light. But that's not what I mean. The timing of the lights should dynamically adjust yes. to the traffic at the time. Yes. So then if there's traffic coming, you should be able to tell when the traffic is coming and how to dynamically adjust the lights so that the lights work in the most efficient way. And we're still on timers for that. It's a crazy situation. And again, it just reflects the fact that the cost of the delay of individuals is not borne by the person making the decision on how to design traffic lights. Agreed. I would hazard a guess that if you were to impose a delay tax, the time saving alone in road repair would be substantial. That the entire way cities and highways are repaired would be fundamentally altered in an enormous time-saving way. I really think that putting a delay tax in would be very advantageous and very helpful for the rest of us to remove this externality. So let's do a last example, which is really one of my pet peeves. When we lived in New York, there were often these weather emergencies that were being sent out. 
And we didn't live there for very long. But in the time that we were there, I think two or three times, essentially the storm of the century was announced in the short period of time that we lived there. So the probability that the snowstorm of the century would exactly happen every time, and of course, exposed, none of those storms ever happen. So again, here, the question is, what is the incentive of the official who sees a severe weather risk? Of course, you announce that there is this high risk, everybody prepares. If it doesn't happen, then there isn't really a big cost that you bear. At least that's what the official thinks. Whereas if you didn't announce and it did happen, then of course, you're going to get fired. Because if a lot of people get surprised by extreme weather, then a lot of bad things can happen to those people. But I do think that it's important that we try to incorporate the externalities as well as the long-term effects of this policy. The first one is, there are a lot of people that are preparing and exposed find out that they prepared for nothing. And so if you just exaggerate the extent to which it's going to happen, then you're imposing that cost on a lot of people and the official doesn't bear that cost. And secondly, and we talked about this in a previous episode, crying wolf is a costly long-term thing to do because... If you announce five times that the storm of the century is coming and it doesn't happen, do you think that the sixth time you announce it, people are still going to take it as seriously as the first five times? Or do you think that there's a gradually wearing out of the effect? And then when the storm actually does come, people aren't prepared. Yes, yeah, so Jules, let's just be clear about this. Obviously, the people in charge of predicting storms are not soothsayers. So they only know with some probability the severity of the storm. And obviously, it's going to happen when they're going to predict a severe storm, and the storm is not as severe. What you're saying is there's a bias, that they have an incentive to overestimate the severity of a storm, so that the probability of a more severe storm coming is lowered than the probability of a, in favor of a probability of a less severe storm. So basically, what happens is they predict most storms are worse than they are. Actually, let's be precise about it. There's a difference between what they estimate and what they communicate, indeed. And so the question is, how large does the probability for a severe storm have to be before they announce it as if it's going to happen? Is that number at 20% or at 40% or at 60%? Where is it exactly? So how many times does it need to happen in their calculation for them to announce it as a severe weather event every time? Maybe 20% they find is enough. But I do think that if it only truly happens one in every five times, it's going to have this wearing out effect on the people that receive this news. Yes, and they don't take that into account. In other words, their view is one in five. My God, that's a big number. Can you imagine we miss one in five storms? Yeah. If you look at it that way, it's hard to argue. But that's not the right way to look at it. The right way to look at it is to think about what is the long-term effect of always calling a storm worse than it is. And so the long-term effect is people, first of all, they expend energy preparing for something they didn't have to prepare for. But the bigger one, as you say, is the crying wolf. They begin to not take as seriously the, the notices to prepare for a storm so that when the really bad storm comes, they're not prepared. Indeed. And unfortunately, that externality, the decision maker doesn't take into account. And so we have people constantly saying how bad storms are, and they turn out that they're not that bad. For me, the salient thing is drought. I live in California, and it seems like every year there's a drought. And I've often thought about it, well, why is it that we're much less water in California now than there was 20 years ago? 
And I have a very cynical answer. My cynical answer is the person whose job it is to declare a drought, if they don't declare a drought and the city runs out of water, they've lost their job. If they declare a drought and then later on the city starts raining or the city doesn't run out of water, they get a promotion for managing the water really well. So that means the incentive is to always declare droughts, no matter how much water there is. And so I cynically say that there is no drought in California because basically I wonder how close we really are to truly running out of water. And that my guess is the probability that at any point in time we could truly run out of water in the most severe situations is still very low. And it's just the incentives of the decision maker to declare the drought and ignore the externalities. Because that's the other thing. People have this tendency to trivialize the externalities, to like and say, what's so hard about having a brown lawn? Well, if brown lawns didn't cost anybody anything, nobody would have a lawn. Obviously, there's a cost to having a brown lawn. And that ignoring that cost for so many people is an externality. Yes, exactly. What you mean is, when these droughts are declared, you're not allowed to water your lawn, and therefore the lawns will look brown and therefore look ugly for everybody to observe. Right, exactly. All right, let's do one more, which I think is actually one of the most pressing ones to think about, which is the overload of information problem that we're seeing today. So in the past, we had some constraints on the way in which you could produce and distribute information. There were a few newspapers printing somebody was a costly process. There was an editorial process where people would filter what would get into newspapers and what wouldn't, regardless of whether they did a good job at that. At least there was a filter and there was a cost. Today, there's essentially no cost anymore to produce information and to spread it around. And that has quite a few benefits potentially, but I also think that it has a downside, which is that none of us can possibly process the amount of information that comes out by this many people on a daily basis. And I think that we don't have a very good mechanism of efficiently aggregating that overload of information problem. Yeah. So I think, again, it's an externality because if it's free to distribute information, then I wish to distribute it. I'm not taking into account the overload on the people reading the information. And so... In doing that, we all produce too much information. If we could somehow include a cost for the overload, then we'd be careful and we would say, okay, let's only communicate information when it's really important, but we don't do that. And so we hate this overload of information. So what's the solution to that? Because it does seem to me that the previous aggregators, which were the traditional media, Right, they're, I think, actually in quite a bit of a commercial bind today. And so in a paper that we recently wrote, we looked at 13,000 local newspapers and we looked at what the level of sentiment was, positivity or negativity in reported news. And over the last couple of decades, it's one big trend down, meaning that it seems to be the case that the way news is reported today is the most negative it's been since, say, 1850. So over that 170-year period, it was pretty much the same level of positivity and negativity for about 100 years, maybe 110 years. And in the last four decades, it's just one big trend down, and it's as negative as it can be today. So as these traditional media outlets are losing some of this aggregation function, I do think we have a bit of a conundrum today about who we should trust in reading and how we aggregate this huge amount of information that's out there. Yeah, so when I read your paper, Jules, 
and I thought about it in economic terms. I was thinking about this, that back in the day when it was costly to disseminate information, basically local newspapers had a monopoly. And when you're a monopolist, you price higher. So what does it mean in this case to price higher? I think what it means is that originally journalists had a personal desire to try to present the fact in an unbiased way. And because they had a local monopolist, they could do that to not great cost to the number of readers. Unfortunately, human beings don't like to read the other side. They like to read only their side. And also, they also like bad news over good news. And so once you had competition, once you lost that monopolist, because the local newspaper was no longer a monopolist, journalists couldn't just please their own preferences by fairly reporting the news. They knew if they did that, they would lose readers. So what they had to do then is report the news the readers wanted to hear, meaning whatever political bias they have, as well as bad news over good news. And so as a result, I think that's why you find that in the last, whatever it is, 50 years, we've had this just incredible increase in the amount of negative news that's reported. And polarization in news that's reported, absolutely. I don't have a clear solution for this one, to tell you the truth. It's partially a convergence problem with the arrival of, of a new technology of distributing information that we have to somehow find a new equilibrium. But it's not obvious to me where that equilibrium will be. For the longest time, I've always said, well, I'd always make the all else equal argument. I would say, look, people are not stupid. They will come to understand the biases of the newspapers. The newspapers wanted to sell newspapers. And so as a result, they want to tell you what you want to believe. And people will understand those biases and they'll start correcting for it and understanding that they're only getting one side. But I have to say, Jules, I'm getting more and more concerned about whether or not this is true, that how rational human beings are. Because, you know, the extent to which even after at least 20 years of very cheap information, people's willingness to just believe what they read really is astonishing to me. Well, or maybe we can phrase that differently. The willingness of consuming the news that already confirms what you thought anyway. I'm not even quite sure it is believing what they read. It's that they search out the piece of information that fits the best with their preconceived notions. Yeah. And maybe the other thing is to realize that at some basic level, news is entertainment. Yes. And people want to be entertained. And that entertainment means reconfirm what makes me feel good. And maybe even the bad news. I think the world's going to hell. So please reconfirm that for me. So I could feel good about it. Otherwise, it's very hard for me to understand why people seem to have this need to listen to bad news. Maybe they just can't help themselves. That is a possibility, I think. I think those were a couple of good examples in completely different areas of application that I think illustrate the interaction of incentives and externalities, and with a few potential solutions in some cases where it can be fixed. Right? I think externalities implies that there's something not priced in the market that somehow through the tax, for example, that you suggested, you could potentially fix. And I think in some cases, it's easy to fix it. And others, it's quite difficult, as we saw in some of the examples. Jules, let's just bring this back. It's after all a business decision-making program. How does it affect a business decision-maker? I mean, these are very good examples that we all see every day. But what we're hoping for is that they will trigger in your organizations thinking along the same lines, thinking about how employees make decisions and ignore externalities within the organization. For sure. 
and how by thinking about things like, for example, a delay tax or thinking about contracts that could internalize some of those incentives could make the organization work better. For sure. And I think that setting up compensation structures that not just look at the individual performance of the employee, but also compensate what the group or the corporation as a whole achieves might help to overcome some of these externalities, particularly if their externalities only apply within the group. And I do think that's an important point to make because one of the upcoming episodes is going to be about how do you set compensation and what is the optimal way of setting a compensation in your organization as an executive? I have to say, I don't think that's enough. I don't think it's enough to say, well, we're just compensating employees based on my overall performance because that is influenced by so many things. I think you also sometimes have to identify important externalities and work contracts to address the externality in particular, not just the overall performance of the company. Agreed. Thanks for listening to the All Else Equal podcast. Please leave us a review at Apple Podcasts. We love to hear from our listeners. And be sure to catch our next episode by subscribing or following our show wherever you listen to your podcasts. For more information and episodes, visit allelseequalpodcast.com or follow us on LinkedIn. The All Else Equal Podcast is a production of Stanford University's Graduate School of Business and is produced by University FM.